uh, who don't know me, I have two children. Uh, their ages are two and one, and in a few months, it'll sound a little bit better. I can say they're three and one. Uh, Kalia will turn three in March. Um, but uh, Kalia, our oldest, uh, she's been going through this phase recently where she decides that uh, she needs to get up at like five in the morning or 5.15 in the morning. And I'm like, woo! I mean, I, I normally get up early, but come on. Uh, so I have to get up early and get my coffee in my system and, and get ready to go so that way I'm prepared for when she decides to, bloop, I'm up, Dad, here we go. The day has started. And I was like, no, the sun is not up. Come on. What's going on? So we're working through that. Um, but this morning, uh, I, uh, I heard her wrestling around in her room about 5.45 this morning, and I'm like, gosh, it's Sunday. Come on, let's, let's sleep in a little bit, you know, on the weekend. She doesn't understand weekends yet. But uh, I, I opened the door, and I was ready to go. It's time to go back in your bed. We've got to get back into bed. I found her on the floor with her little beginner's Bible open, just laying on the floor and just flipping through the pages. And she looked up at me and she goes, Hi, Daddy. And I was like, how, how can I tell her to go back to bed? How can I tell her to stop reading God's Word or stop just looking at the page? I mean, even if it's just pages, she's understanding the pages, you know. She talks to me, she goes, This is Daniel, Daniel's lion's den. Yes, it is. I mean, no, that's not what she said today, but that's kind of the idea. It's just, wow. I mean, so with my kids, I'm never going to tell them that they can have to put down God's Word. I don't care what time of day it is. Uh, I will encourage that. So uh, that was just uh, was awesome. And we use that little Bible um, every night uh, before we go to bed. We try to every single night. We try to sit down for, it's just five minutes. But we read through uh, just a brief little passage in that, in that little Bible, and that kind of just gives them uh, the Word a little bit. And, and I am... I, I'm. Uh, I'm not, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm, I, I'm confident in that because of the opportunities that we get with them to share God's word and to teach them in that way. And so for this morning service, since we have our kids uh, here with us today, I'm going to start our service the way we start uh, our uh, family worship time at home. Are you ready, Kalia? So what we have learned applies to our lives today. God has a lot to say. In his book. For we know that God's word is for everyone. Now that our song is done, we'll take a look. So turn with me in your Bibles to the letter to the Colossians, please. We'll be continuing our study of the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. And specifically, we'll be in chapter 2. And we'll be in, uh, starting with chapter 2, verse 6. As we have seen over the last uh, four weeks, the entire first chapter of this letter was Paul's way of introducing himself to the church there in Colossae. Now remember, they had not met Paul face to face yet. And they were taught the gospel message through the work of Epaphras, who was one of Paul's disciples, one of, Paul's, uh, um, one of those uh, folks who Paul had taught and Epaphras went and started this church in Colossae on behalf of Paul. Now, Paul takes some time throughout the first chapter to introduce himself and his ministry in order to encourage the church there that the words that he has written in this letter can be taken as authoritative or as an authoritative source commissioned by Christ. And we know this to be true because we have the opportunity to read through Luke's book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, where we learn that uh, Paul 
was con- uh, had been converted by Christ, right? We know this to be true, and we know his commission by Christ to be true from his conversion story provided to us there in the book of Acts. He also spent some time addressing the truth of who Jesus is throughout the first chapter uh, of uh, Colossians here. And that truth of who Jesus is, is the gospel message, which was provided succinctly in chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, or, or 15 through 23 even. And we will be going back to that passage a little bit today to kind of help us see what Paul's talking about here in chapter 2. But in today's passage, as we'll see here in a minute, Paul's letter transitions from introduction to instruction. That's where we are today, starting in chapter 6, I'm sorry, in chapter 2, verse 6. Paul writes, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood, ad- that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on ascetism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perished as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and ascetism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so as you may have noticed while I was reading, this is the point in the letter where Paul begins to really hone in on uh, what he wants to address to the Colossians here, this Colossian church. So that said, if you read chapter 1 carefully, you might have been able to pick up on the fact that since the opening line, since he started writing this letter, he has been both addressing the problems that he wants to address and also forming a foundation for that address. He's been doing that all throughout chapter 1. And today we finally get into the meat of the letter, and the heart of the issue that Paul intends to snuff out of the church in Colossae. And in in reality, 
all of the church, even for today. So while there are many ways to dissect and digest this passage that we're going to talk about today, I've decided to break it down like this. There is an important assumption that Paul makes about the church, and specifically about this church in Colossae. He identifies a problem, and then he begins to provide a solution for that problem. So we have an assumption, we have a problem, and then we have a solution. Now first, we'll start with the assumption. Let's go back and read verses 6 through 7. This is where we see Paul's assumption. Paul says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. While this is the point of transition in the letter, these two verses essentially summarize the entire letter. These two verses really summarize the entire letter here. At the beginning of verse 6, which says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, what Paul's doing here is he's pulling on what he taught in chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. If you remember back, he's teaching the Colossians about their position and their salvation in Christ. Specifically, verses 12 through 14, Paul says, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Their position in the kingdom is established in Christ. That's what Paul's saying here in verse 12 through 14. And there's, uh, the element of salvation has been applied to them. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So first, Paul is making the claim that the Colossians have received Christ Jesus as Lord. They are, they are saved. They are in Christ. That's what he's saying here in, verse, in the start of verse 6. And then also, we noticed what he says about Christ Jesus. He is Lord. He says, Christ Jesus, the Lord. This is the truth of who Christ is. If you recall back to verses 15 through 20 in chapter 1, Paul says, speaking of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him, meaning Christ. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Paul is making sure they understand that, I am, Paul says, I am assuming I have, I, you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, as King. They looked at Jesus as King. King of kings. King of the universe. King of the cosmos. Okay? He's recognizing that. And that's important for us to understand for the rest of this passage because of the assumption that he's making here is so clear and so important. Why else is he assuming this? If you go back, so if you look at the, the word therefore, a lot of times we like to try to figure out, well, okay, what's the therefore, therefore, in the Bible? That's, why we, that's what we do with this word, therefore. If you go back to verse 5 in chapter 2, Paul says, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So he's, he's stating, I, I know 
what Epaphras must have informed Paul that the church in Colossae was solid in their faith and solid in their understanding of who Jesus was. And so he's, he's excited about the fact that they are firm in their faith in Christ. And he's pulling again on that in verse 6, making the claim, making the assumption, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, they call on him, they have accepted him as king. Now the second half of verse 6 and all of verse 7 draws us back to chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, which was where Paul provided the Colossians with a pastoral reminder of their former and their new life. Let's go back quickly to verses 21 through 23. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So he's reminding them of their position prior to Christ and now their position in him after uh, their acceptance of him as king. And at the same time, verse 7 starts to form the foundation for the next two chapters. Actually, the next three chapters. All of chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4. So these two verses, really, verses 6 and 7, are the transition point into the rest of the letter. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to preach on 3 and 4 today. Chapters 3 and 4, we're just going to focus on chapter 2. But he starts driving that in. Uh, here in verses 6 through 7. So basically, in these two verses, Paul assumes the Colossians have accepted Jesus as king, and he is going to build upon that assumption for theological and ethical instruction. We're going to see the theological instruction here in chapter 2, and then we'll begin to see that ethical or moral instruction in chapter 3. That'll start next week. The language that Paul uses here is very similar to what he uses in the letter to the Romans, if you recall back to Romans chapter 10 verses 9 through 10, when he's talking about how they've accepted Christ as king. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 10, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So we see the assumption here that Paul makes, and it's important for us to know this assumption because the rest of this letter draws back on that assumption. The rest of this chapter specifically draws back on that assumption that the Colossians have received Christ as their king. So now we'll move on to the problem. Paul starts to dive into the problem. Now, this isn't a uh, the way that this is written. This isn't necessarily a problem that this uh, this church was having. There were opponents of Paul and opponents of Christian teachers. There were false teachers that were trying to influence or or get their way into influencing this church in Colossae. Remember back in verse uh, verse 5 of chapter 2, Paul says that he's he's rejoicing in their firm foundation, that uh, that they believe in Christ. But they are still, it is still possible for them to fall into this temptation of this problem that we're going to see, starting with verse 8. So as, as I read earlier, which you could kind of pick up on, actually, I'll, I'll go ahead and read this verse here in, in verse uh, 8, uh, chapter 2. Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. 
So based on, uh, on how Paul addresses the things that he's concerned about, the implication here is that, the, like I mentioned earlier, the implication here is that the church in Colossae might have been a target of attack for what we can refer to and what I'm going to refer to as, as Jewish mystics. Okay? These were uh, folks who were coming in claiming that, well, the only way you can achieve fullness with God, notice the word achieve there too, right? The only way you can achieve fullness of God or fullness with God is, yeah, it's good to look at Jesus and the things that he taught and things like that, but you have to still follow the Jewish traditions. There are still rituals that you have to perform. They still have to, you know, the sacrificial system, the calendar system. As we, as we saw later on, there was elements of that too in uh, verses 16 through, uh, through 17. Um, and then on top of that, what we get from this letter what we can imply from the letter is that they were also adding these mystical experiences to what they thought would be uh, being a part of this fullness of God or receiving this fullness of God. And these mystical experiences might have uh, involved angelic worship, so worship of angels, or they might have involved uh, this element of worshiping with the angels. And I mean, to some degree, we already worship with the angels too. But what they're talking about what these mystics were talking about is like entering into this realm and, and being exposed to the, the throne and, 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 and this, worse, this, this mystical worship. And they had to, you had to, you had to um, limit the type of food that you ate or the types of things you did or hurt yourself to be in this mystical experience. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. <laughs> you're, missing, you're missing it. There's, you're adding too much. It's all about Christ. It's all about Christ. And the idea was that this would lead to a fullness of God. So notice the language here as I read through this and as we study this together. Notice the language of how he attacks this idea of fullness of God. And he shows you where the real fullness is. Okay. It's interesting that in verse 8, he talks about and he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit human traditions according to these elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. What he's saying here is is if you take on these human philosophies, these human traditions, and now let me take a second here to explain the philosophies and what he's talking about here. So Colossae was an epicenter for Greek and Roman philosophical culture. It was just being, and it was, there was a smashing of Judaism along with that. So you kind of got this melting pot of mixing of cultures where there's this all these different traditions and, and philosophies. And, and many times it was void of Christ. They'd taken Christ out of the picture. It's like, so Paul says, you, you think that these philosophies, these traditions, these things that you're following, that you're being taught, that are apart from Christ, you think these are what's filling you, but without Christ, they're empty. There's nothing to them. Absolutely nothing. And we have to remind ourselves of what he taught us in verses 15 through 20. That him, apart from Christ, there's nothing. Paul uses the phrase philosophy and empty deceit, which is also equivalent to basically state, he could say, empty and deceitful philosophies. You could say it, the same, say it that way as well. Empty, deceitful philosophies. So in other words, they're empty, because they have no substance. He's teaching the Colossians, these philosophies have no substance. 
without Christ, as he defined in chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, it would be impossible for mankind to even come up with these ideas in the first place. So removing him from the equation makes them empty, makes them meaningless, and it makes them nothing. Which then, if you remove Christ, what does it do? It leads to deception. That's the word that he uses, deception, deceptive philosophies. And deception only leads to one way, destruction and death. That is the path of deception. So let me bring this in home to us for real today. Okay, we're talking about philosophies. Paul's talking about philosophies in Colossae back in the early first century. But there are similar ideas today. There are similar philosophies today. And at the risk of losing you today, I'm going to tell you what I think those philosophies are. And I'm preaching to myself too when I say this. Because I get caught up in referring to these as if they're real as well sometimes too. An easy one. Mother Nature. Think about it. How often do we use that as if there's some power there? If we go back to chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, nature doesn't exist without Christ. Mother Nature. Or, and let me say this very carefully, referring to the universe or science or chance as if those have any power in and of themselves. Now, I'm an engineer. I'm a scientist. I use science, but let me explain science. As believers, we must be careful and diligent with the language that we use when we're referring to these things. With regarding to science, and there are many scientists and mathematicians and engineers in this church, I'm not suggesting that science is bad. Okay? I'm not. Or that it should not even be considered, because it should. I'm suggesting we need to be diligent in the way in which we refer to science. Especially us as Christians. We must be diligent to the way we refer to science. Science, correctly defined, does not have any power in and of itself. It does not do anything. The other problem is that science really doesn't say anything. Again, let me be clear. Science, rightly defined, is a method. The scientific method. It is a means toward understanding or towards knowledge that has a specific methodology. It is the methodology that defines the science, not so much the findings. And in all cases, the scientific method, when correctly applied, reveals things to us or gives us a better understanding of the created world in which we live. So, as concluded by Paul in chapter 1, if Christ hadn't created the universe or the humans to study it, there wouldn't even be such a thing as science. So, as Christians, we must be diligent in the way which we speak. Because it's showing what's in our heart and what motivates us and drives us. And those are the types of things that Paul is 
warning the Colossian church about is do not get caught up. Do not take, be taken captive by these empty philosophies because they will deceive you and they will take you away from the one true king, the king of kings. So does what we say reflect our belief that Jesus is king? Again, going back to verses 15 through 20 in chapter 1. Does what we say reflect our belief that Jesus is king? And does it reflect our hope of his coming kingdom? We might be tempted to think that some phrases that we use are harmless. But are they really? What does this tell our kids? If we use these words, what does this tell our kids? It's going to cause confusion. And, and causing confusion doesn't come from God. We know where confusion comes from. It comes from Satan. He's twisting the truth. Science is good. We need to be using science, sci the scientific method. That's very important because it helps us understand God even more. Theology is a science. It is a method for understanding God. How beautiful is it then that he gave it to us to use? If we truly believe in Christ's resurrection, nothing else can stand before that and claim his position. Right? If the resurrection is real, what else matters? This all goes back to Christ and the resurrection. We have that to fall back on. He is the King of Kings, the King of the cosmos, of creation seen and unseen. So Paul goes on then in verse 9 and says, For in Him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Now, kids, you guys remember that last four weeks. So Charlotte and Leah and Lydia, what we've been learning the last four weeks. Remember the, the phrase that we use, our title of our series? What was it? Live out loud. Right? Live out loud. For us adults today, our solution is our confidence in our position in Christ. Our confidence in our position in Christ. Now, help, allow me to explain a little, that a little bit more here. And that's and Paul's starting with this in verse nine here. So first, the first solution within this confidence of our position in Christ, as we build up to that, there is the solution of fullness in Christ. Remember back earlier, I mentioned that uh, these Jewish mystics were talking about how to be full and how to be how to achieve the fullness of God. Well, Paul turns it on his head and said, no, no, fullness is already established in Christ. And you are full because of your position in him. Verse 10, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. The reason why the Colossians ought not to be captured by the promise of fullness in the philosophies of these Jewish mystics is that the fullness of God is in Christ. And they have already been brought into this fullness in Christ. Christ alone is all they need because He is the all. He is the all. 
Notice what he says in verse 9. For in him, being Christ, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. I want to point out four convictions that this verse, this singular verse, points out for us about Christ. Number one, that fullness of deity expresses what in other places in Scripture is called God's glory. Fullness of deity is referring to God's glory. So, in Christ is the fullness of God's glory. You can't get it anywhere else. That's what this verse is saying. Okay, and then let's build upon that. The second conviction about Christ here is that all the fullness of deity, all the fullness of deity is in Christ. And nowhere else, or all, in the sense of all, of God's glory is present other than Christ. This is a breathtaking claim. Because it implies that in Christ, get this, it implies that in Christ, we see God most clearly, and that any understanding of God from now on must be approached through our understanding of Christ. Did you get that? We can only see God for who He really is by looking at Christ. The fullness of deity is in Him. And just, we're going to keep building. Okay, number three, conviction number three here. All of God's fullness is now, now dwelling in Christ. All of God's fullness is now dwelling in Christ. Paul's not talking in the past tense. This is the present tense. All of God's fullness is now dwelling in Christ. And let me build upon that even more. Number four. This is the fourth and final conviction of this verse. This indwelling of God occurs bodily in Christ. It occurs bodily. Notice what he says. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now let's think about this for a minute. What do we know about Christ's body? Ascended. He ascended. His embodied condition, the Creator God who became present in history, is now fully present and embodied and in the glorified life of Jesus. God's fullness is indwelling the body of Jesus Himself, both in His earthly condition and His glorified existence. So when He was here, when He was walking around with the disciples, when He was preaching and teaching, he was The fullness of God was here. The fullness of God was here. And now the fullness of God is with him in heaven. Glorified. It is a glorified existence. And he will return in his fullness of glory. He will come back. We're waiting. God's fullness is now dwelling in Christ. Bodily. That's the mind-blowing part of it. And then verse 10, I won't spend so much time on. <laughs> verse 10. Verse 10 affirms our condition and our position in Christ. We are united with Him. And you have been filled. We're talking about fullness again, right? With Christ we have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. 
And then Paul continues on the solution of baptism in and with Christ, verses two. I'm sorry, uh, chapter two, verses eleven through thirteen. Uh, Paul talks about, uh, kind of brings up this this uh, this rite or the ritual of circumcision, and then also brings in um, baptism. And so it's often thought that Paul mentions circumcision here at this point because the Jewish mystics were teaching that circumcision was something that was required. He was, they were teaching the church in Colossae that in order for them to receive the fullness of God, again, we're talking about the, the fullness of God, in order for them to receive the fullness of God, they had to go through with this rite of circumcision in addition to baptism. In this case, in this letter specifically, Paul doesn't make the argument against circumcision like he does for the church in Galatia. Galatia was dealing with a whole other set of problems. Okay, We're talking about Colossae here. Rather, he introduces this topic to show that something these false teachers were promising, which was the power over flesh. So again, achieving this fullness of God so you could have power over your body, power over the flesh, over sin, so that you could achieve it. This power over flesh, thank you, Kim, <laughs> is, <laughs> is already theirs. This, so what Paul's teaching is that this power over the flesh, it's already theirs in their relationship in Christ. Christ has already given them that power over the flesh. The other thing that Paul is doing here in these verses, uh, in this passage in, in uh, verses 11 through 13, is that he's showcasing how grace has moved seamlessly from the old Abrahamic covenant to the new covenant in Christ's blood. He's revealing this mystery that he referred to in chapter 1, which is the fact that God is adding Gentiles to the number of his people, who prior to Christ only included Jews. God is expanding his kingdom. And he's showing that this this, uh, covenant of grace uh, extends to the Gentiles. The Jews thought it was all about them. And Paul's teaching that that's not true either. So rather than focusing on or getting caught up in this, the rite or the traditions that are being described here, both, both circumcision and baptism, rather than getting caught up in these, he's using these uh, rites, circumcision and baptism here, somewhat synchronously to signify the washing away of sin, personal renewal by the Spirit of God, and membership in the body of Christ. That's what he's doing here. The passage makes an important point about the unity of the covenant of grace in both the Old Testament and the New Testament era. So again, what this is doing is this is building the believers in Colossae, their confidence, it's building their confidence in their position in Christ. And so it should ours. This is building our confidence. We are in the family of God. Just like the Jews were established as the family of God. We are in the family of God. And then verses, uh, the rest of verse 13 through uh, verse 15, we have the solution of victory in Christ. And this is just, this is awesome and, and so important for us today. So I'm just going to read these verses here uh, quickly. Verses 13, the end of verse 13 through 15. Actually, I'll read verse 13, the whole thing. Uh, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, Uh, flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. 
And this is where the confidence really kicks in. All right, listen up. In Pauline fashion, he continues to build upon this concept that Christ has washed away our sin, thereby making us victorious, not over our own flesh, but placing us, get it, us in his eternal kingdom. He's placing us in his kingdom by what he did on the cross. Okay, so let's build through this. Verse 13, Paul teaches that we are a new creation. There are other uh, letters where Paul teaches that we are a new creation. We, are, uh, we have a new life in him, and that's because of forgiveness. Verse 13 talks about how we were dead in our trespasses. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses for sin. The act of forgiveness is what brings us back to life and makes us a new creation. That's what forgiveness does. Notice that Paul had just stated in the beginning of verse 13 that trespasses or sin is what put the Colossians to death. If sin puts to death, then forgiveness brings to life, making a new creation, a life that should unleash in us a desire to forgive to forgive others, and to extend that forgiveness. In verse 14, we move from a new creation in forgiveness to a new creation in cancellation and taking it away. So, it's one thing to forgive. It's another thing to completely cancel and take it away. The record of debt, so that phrase that Paul is using there, that record of debt, refers to, to a commonly um, a known handwritten document that was used at, that would be written about the debts that you had against the government or the debts that you had against someone. There was a, this record of debt. was a handwritten uh, document. And in this context, it refers to a certificate of indebtedness, a receipt or a contract confessed to and then signed by the debtor. So, on us. And what does it say? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. By nailing this record of debt to the cross, the record of sin was passed to Christ. Our names were stripped. The identification of who committed the debt was placed to Christ. By nailing it on the cross. That's what the Romans would do when there was a crucifixion. They would nail what, was, what, the, what that uh, person was being held there for, to the cross. The record of debt would be hung on the cross with the one being executed. What was nailed to the cross for Jesus when he was executed? King of the Jews. King of the Jews. True. Right? It was true. Think about that, though. Think about that in the context of eternity. Jesus hanging there on the cross. His debt, the record of debt, was being king of the Jews. For all of eternity, God has wanted to be our king. He established himself as the king of the Jews before they said, came to him, God, we want a king. We want, a man, we want an earthly king. 
God was their king prior to that. And all throughout the Old Testament, think about this, as, as he's hanging there on the cross with the sign above his head that says, King of the Jews. Throughout the whole Old Testament, what was written about the king of the Jews and what he would do? Throughout the whole Old Testament, and all of Isaiah, he is the Savior of the world. Why didn't that go off when they hung him there? It was the perfect record of debt for him on the cross. King of the Jews. Now let's talk about the cross. This is so awesome to me. Okay, get ready for it. What does Paul say about in verse 15 about the cross? He, being Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. So we are a new creation in Christ making a spectacle of the crucifixion of His, of his death. Now let me explain. The ultimate paradox is clear here. The location to celebrate victory and power is not the Roman Forum or the public streets of the Roman cities, but instead where Rome, including these rulers and authorities that Paul's referring to, where we celebrate power and victory is where these rulers thought they were dominant. At the cross. The powers are reversed. At the place Rome used for ultimate indignity, God reestablishes the dignity of all of us. Death has no power over Christ. And since we are in Christ, death has no power over us. The rulers and authorities have no power over us. Now, there's some deeper issues here with the rulers and authorities. There's deeper nature to what Paul's talking about. He's not just talking about the political, the worldly political system. He's talking about the spiritual political system as well. There's a domain where Daniel refers to it, where there are rulers and authorities in the unseen realm, the spiritual realm, that are working and influencing our worldly system as well, and the political system there. So there's this dynamic happening here, and Jesus put it all to shame. Both man and spirit put it to shame, what they were trying to do. Because they thought that they had the power and was showing it there at the cross. Death has no power over us. So who should we fear? Our confidence is our position in Him. Our confidence should be in our power in Christ. None but Christ alone. And if we are in Christ, we are alive. What do we have to lose? Now, what I'm, I'm not suggesting that we should just go out there and blatantly ignore every single law and rule and authority that's out there. Because what else does the Bible say about those things? Christ is the one who placed them there. He is over all authority. So we should honor the authority. But in light of Christ. Right? There's many who read this that say, oh, well, Paul was anti-Rome. He was trying to take over Rome and, and tell them that they, they should just ignore. 
No, no. He's just telling them, don't be so afraid to the point where you're afraid of death. Because you don't have any fear of death. Because of what Christ has done. Okay, now I don't have time to get through 16 through 23 today. <laughs> but, <laughs> unless you want me to. Do you want me to? <laughs> no. <laughs> but, essentially. So, Paul talks about, he says that, uh, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink, or with regard to festival, or new moon, or Sabbath. Essentially, this passage, what he's saying here, he's saying, don't let anybody disqualify you. Don't let anybody cast you out of the kingdom. Or think that they can cast you out of the kingdom because you don't meet these specific requirements or you don't follow these specific regulations. right? And he's not saying that Judaism is bad. In fact, Ju- uh, Paul would consider himself probably the, the fullest of full Jews. right? Because he's established in the Jewish tradition, but then he's a believer in Christ. And he's following Christ. What he's saying is, don't, you, don't, you don't need that stuff. All you need is Christ. That's how he wraps it up. All you need is Christ. So in other words, if we're alive in Christ, why should we submit to these, uh, these human regulations and those who seek to defy him or push him out of the way? We are alive in Christ alone. And our heart, and the way the Bible talks about our heart, is the very thing that drives our every desire, our every need, our every concern, our every thought, our every motivation. It should be from Him and for Him. Nothing else even comes close. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we just thank You uh, for this opportunity this morning to, to come to Your come to your house and to worship you and to study your word and to just, to just dive in it and to see what your, um, your servant, your, your slave, Paul, is teaching us. We thank you for him and the, and the work that you did through him. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for ministering to us today and teaching us. I just ask that you would uh, uh, take us all back to our homes safely so that we can return again next week to dive into the next portion of this letter starting in chapter 3. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.